The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, and I will be talking today with Eric Peterson. Eric is currently a senior consultant with Cook Ross Incorporated, and before working with Cook Ross, he worked with the Society for Human Resource Management, which is the world's largest association for human resources and diversity and inclusion practitioners. Eric has designed strategies and provided thought leadership for, oh, about 15 years, uh, generally in the area of diversity and inclusiveness. And to do that, you have to learn a lot about unconscious bias, which is our primary topic today. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this. So, unconscious bias, I hear that pair of words kind of often these days. What is it? What's going on? Yeah, it is a growing topic uh, for folks. It's funny, I set up a little Google alert for myself in my mailbox so that when the words unconscious bias are included in some kind of major news story, I'll just get a hit so I can learn more about this thing that I'm supposed to be an expert in. And I've noticed that I used to get maybe one email a week. Now I get an email every single day, sometimes with four or five stories uh, attached to it. So it does seem to be something that we talk about a little bit more than we used to. Um, <clears throat> basically, the idea behind unconscious bias is that, you know, most of us think about bias and we, we have a very negative uh, attachment to that word. Uh, we think about prejudice and bigotry and discrimination and all kinds of, you know, nasty thoughts come up when you hear the word bias, particularly when it's attached to the conversation around diversity. Um, but when we talk about unconscious bias, uh, you know, the, the, the new conversation that's going on about it, uh, it really is a combination of what neuroscientists and social psychologists are telling us about how our brain works. Bias is essentially a normal, natural function of every human brain. Uh, it's the ability to make very, very quick decisions, uh, oftentimes in less than a second. Uh, you make a decision about something based on some prior experience that exists in your background um, and uh, and use those decisions to formulate, you know, your, your behaviors going forward. And when they happen unconsciously, which often they do, mostly because when something happens in less than a second, you don't really experience it as a decision. You more experience it as just something that you noticed. Uh, and so when you just notice something, you tend to trust that thing that you observed uh, and therefore, you use that information uh, to uh, decide what to do uh, in various situations. And oftentimes, your behavior, therefore, can be very biased. And you have no idea 
that this has gone on. One of the principal things about bias that we always have to remind people is that you can have a bias around something and your conscious mind absolutely disagrees uh, with this thing that is in your brain that has helped you make this really quick decision. If, you're, if you think about it and you're thoughtful about it, you absolutely believe that, you know, all people are equal and that, you know, uh, distinctions based on things like race or gender or sexual orientation or religion or disability are absolutely wrong. And yet, we live in a society that gives us less than helpful messages about those topics all the time. Uh, and so they end up being logged in the back of your brain, whether you want them to be there or not. And they do sometimes crop up at inopportune times uh, and have us make uh, distinctions about people that are ultimately not very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you make an important point that one of the reasons everybody has unconscious biases is that we have to make quick decisions. We're surrounded by sights and sounds and tastes and and the way things feel when you bump into them. And you can't pay attention to all of the stimuli all of the time. You have to have a way to put it into a package that matches up with something that you already know how to deal with. Yeah. You know, scientists right? tell us that we have access at any point in time, even right now, the folks who are listening to this, uh, have access to 11 million pieces of information in their immediate environment. And our brains can only really handle 40 to 50 of those things. So one of the things our biases do, it helps us sort out which 40 to 50 pieces of information I'm going to absorb at any one time. Um, and what's what we know, you know definitely about the brain is that if there's anything in your environment that you have logged as a potential threat... Uh, that might, you know, trigger a, a threat response, you're absolutely going to notice that first. That's the way that we've evolved, which makes sense. You know, you mm-hmm. want to notice things that are threatening to you before you notice things uh, that might make you wistful or happy. <laughs> because if you miss something that makes you wistful or happy, well, you know, you might see that again tomorrow. If you miss something that's a, a truly a threat, uh, you might not live to see another day. So it's, a, it's a definitely a survival mechanism. Uh, that we've picked up on. You know, we sometimes joke, back in the caveman days, you know, if you see a saber-toothed tiger emerge from a bush, you don't stop and say, huh, nice kitty, I wonder what I should do. You know, the the animals that, uh, you know, evolve to survive will immediately start running. And um, and that's an example of a bias. And so one of the things to note about biases is that many of, much of the time, they're absolutely correct. And they spur on automatic behaviors that are guaranteed to have you live to see another day or make meaning out of things that are the correct meaning because they're things that you've noticed many times before a pattern has formed in your brain and so that pattern just shows up and it it tells you what's going on in the world and that information is absolutely right where bias can sometimes get us in trouble is when we've absorbed information that is less than helpful so the mechanism in your brain that is happening that causes you to have a bias, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing about that that makes you immoral or deficient in character or in any way bad. Um, sometimes it's the information that you have picked up that you didn't put there. You know, the world around you has, has placed less than helpful information about different kinds of people in your brain. Uh, that sometimes uh, can be, uh, it leads to behavior that is sometimes less than optimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a show that focuses uh, on families, so I will tell a story now about an example, and then you can build from this, uh, an example sure. of how I developed, I acquired 
a bias in my childhood because of experiences that I had. And I grew up in a in a white family in a white suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. And one of my parents was overtly racist. One of them didn't have a lot to say about the topic. Um, and I seldom saw black people except when we drove to Fenway Park to go watch the Red Sox win another ball game. And then we'd be piled in our VW because that was the easiest kind of car to park in a busy city uh, near the ballpark. And when we drove through Roxbury, where almost all of the people on the street were black, my parents would remind us, roll up the windows and lock the doors. So I was seven years old, six years old, nine years old, getting the message, black people are scary. You need to protect yourself from them. And that's, you know, that's just part of what stayed with me as I became older and consciously thought, that's not fair. It's not accurate. This isn't the way the world should be. This is not the way, this is not what I want to believe and this is not how I want to behave. But there it is. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sociologists will tell us that the the lessons we learn as children between the ages of 4 and 16 are oftentimes the most difficult to shake. Uh, And so when you are imprinted with that kind of, you know, fear-based messaging um, as a child, it can be very, you know, and I'm sure it was scary even to just to be told, roll up your windows, lock your doors, you know, there, and you were forced to kind of physicalize that act of protecting yourself against this perceived threat, you know, it's absolutely no, you know, question in my mind that it was not your fault, but that certainly you logged people with darker skin became something that provoked a threat response uh, Mm -hmm. in you because you were given it verbally and you were asked to physically enact something that would absolutely validate uh, that that piece of knowledge. And, And again, you say as an adult, and I could even tell when you were telling the story that it's not something that you agree with today, it's not something that you like, and yet... Um, you know, you didn't include this in your story, but if you were to be driving down, you know, uh, the street where you live right now and look up and all of a sudden see two, you know, young black men approaching your car, you might automatically lock your door to this day. And many people would see that and think, oh, that's so racist. And yet it's, again, it's, it's something that you consciously don't agree with that way of looking at the world. It's a worldview that you consciously reject. And yet there's messaging that lives in the back of your brain that says, you know, I tag this with danger. And I actually believe um, that that exact kind of story is exactly why we see the Black Lives Matter movement uh, now so prevalent, which is obviously, you know, ripping families apart when uh, when young unarmed black men are killed by police officers. Um, And I don't mean to denigrate the police as I say this. However, you know, we have cops out there on the street who have guns in their hand and are making those kinds of split, oftentimes unconscious decisions based on who they believe around them might be dangerous. And so a young black man doesn't necessarily have to be carrying a gun uh, for him to already be logged in that policeman's mind as a bigger potential threat than if I, a 44-year-old white man you know, <laughs> wearing a button-down collar shirt with my hands in my pockets, I might not be seen as instantly as being threatening. I wouldn't provoke someone 
to necessarily draw uh, a gun on me, not because I'm any better than anybody else, but it's just that, you know, the society has taught us this kind of person is dangerous, this kind of person is inherently less trustworthy, and this other kind of person uh, does not necessarily provoke that threat response within you. And so, you know, I think a lot of times it's, it's the, you know, it's the racism of the society that we live in overall that really is to blame for some of those deaths. It kind of gets pinned on those individual cops who obviously have to be held accountable for their actions, but I really believe that um, anybody who's, who's in law enforcement who carries a gun around who is going to be making these kind of split-second decisions really has to undergo a lot of training about what the unconscious mind does to your decision-making, how it can have these potentially life-or-death impacts uh, when you are a police officer. I spend most of my time talking to folks who are managers and bosses, you know, who write performance reviews and decide who gets a job, and these can have big impacts on people's lives, not necessarily the same kind of life-or-death impact uh, that we're talking about right now, but I really believe it comes from the same source. Mm-hmm. So what do we do about it? I'm, well, um, I know you're you know, one tell- of the, yeah, unconscious bias is, is you know, the, the definition that we often use with these mental associations that happen without our awareness, without our intention, and without our control. So in other words, we don't even know it's happening. We don't mean for it to happen. And if we wanted to turn it off, we couldn't. There's just no way to do that. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about our intention or our control. What we can do is raise our biases to the level of awareness and just realize every single time we make one of these these kind of split decisions, uh, these snap decisions, that we can recognize that that just happened and say, oh, okay, that was a bias. Um, you know, those of us who don't carry guns around and, and have that kind of impact on people's lives, at the very least, we can say after it happens, sometimes you can't stop it from happening, but you can say, oh, okay, that feeling that I just had, that was a bias, and now I'm going to treat that data um, with the value that it's worth, which is not to say I should just toss it aside. Sometimes, again, our biases tell us things that are absolutely correct. If you meet someone and you automatically are getting some kind of signal that you shouldn't trust them and that you perhaps, you know, maybe should avoid this person, is it really going to hurt to cross the street, you know, <laughs> and get away from that person? Maybe it's rude, maybe it's not seemly, but it might, you know, your, your biases might very well be uh, pinging something um, that is absolutely correct. Um, a bias can happen just as easily in a positive way. Uh, you can meet someone, I think most of us have probably met someone in our lives and immediately thought, hey, I like you. There's just something about you that I'm really, you know, I really dig. And there's, there's, you know, you seem smart, you seem funny. I think we're going to be really good friends. And you have these thoughts after knowing them for two seconds. And mm-hmm. when you meet someone like that and they're, a, you know, your new next door neighbor, that's great. You know, what a great foundation for uh, a brand new relationship. And, and maybe you won't like them as, as totally as you think you will, but that's a great way to kind of get that started. Um, when you're meeting somebody who is, uh, you know, a potential, uh, you know, uh, let's say in the, in the world that I work in, I'm usually, again, coaching employers on this. If you meet someone who's a potential new hire and you automatically have that feeling, then you kind of have to be careful that you don't automatically give this person a job and a key to the executive boardroom before really giving them a real interview. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, our, our, we, have, we have negative biases and we have positive biases. Uh, they both can work very much in our favor and they can both work very much to our detriment. Um, and it's just being aware. One of the, the only thing we can really do about it is practice conscious awareness and also 
start examining our own life stories so that the story that you just told me, you know, you can get to the heart of why this particular bias might live within you somewhere, and then you can begin to correct it. Uh, luckily, this idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks is not even true for dogs. Um, That's true. It's certainly <laughs> You're not correct true for about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we can learn. Uh, so we can, we can reroute uh, some of those biases. One of the best ways to take a bias and write yourself a new story is to find some positive role models within that group that triggers you. Um, so someone who was raised with the kind of messaging that you got around African-Americans, I think their goal might be to find some positive role models in the African-American community and really establish some meaningful interactions with those folks because those real-life examples and, you know, having that become another chapter in your story to give you a little bit more information will start carving some new neural pathways in your brain and give you different kinds of messaging. The next time you encounter somebody with dark skin, you have a multitude of messages uh, to choose from and not simply the negative ones. But a lot of people who were raised in the way that you described just avoid entire racial groups for the rest of their career or over the rest of their lives, you know. And so uh, in, in one sense, who can blame them? But I think that also once you become an adult and you realize, you know, that's not a really helpful way of looking at the world, then it's really up to you to broaden your horizons. Right. So I hope that um, we will get a chance to talk during this show about what parents teach their kids. How do we raise our kids now so that bias will be less of a problem in their social lives mm-hmm. in the future than it, than it was for us? But maybe we need to work on ourselves first. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's I'm, kind of a, it's. You know, we always we always joke that we're we're like the flight attendants who say, you know, please secure your own mask before helping others. <laughs> you know? right. um, it, it can be very tempting to learn about bias and to take this information uh, in a way that says, you know, let's let's fix everybody else but me. When the fact is, we all have work to do uh, right. on this topic. It's something that we can all benefit from learning a little bit more about. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I do is consciously practice if I'm riding on the metro. Whoever else comes in and sits down on the metro somewhere near me, I smile at them. Mm -hmm. If they look like they're open, I say hello. And that's, you know, regardless of gender, race, age, whatever. It's just a little practice that I have to maybe um, undo some of the the otherwise biased behavior that would come naturally to me. Is yeah, and I, I, you know, without <laughs> even asking you, I'm, I'm betting, and tell me if I'm wrong, that sometimes that's a more comfortable exercise for you than others because there are different messages that you have about different people uh, that you encounter there. But that's a, that's a wonderful example of kind of consciously making choices that override what your unconscious brain might be telling you and opening yourself up to new experiences because some of the folks who might even trigger you the most might end up being the friendliest person you ever met on the train. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, that's that an example of that meaningful interaction. I mean, a great conversation on a Metro ride could very well meet all the criteria of mine of a meaningful interaction. Uh, and that might very well be something that helps you kind of rewrite those codes so that certain people are not as threatening as they were before. Um, you know, as we get into this conversation about how parents can teach their children, obviously one of the things that all parents do, it's just a you know, loving instinct to try to keep them safe, right? And so you're going to give people messages, you know, your children messages about how to 
be safe and who to avoid and don't talk to strangers. And, you know, we hear stories about kids being abducted, and I'm sure that that absolutely terrifies uh, parents out there. And so they're going to naturally uh, start giving some messages around what it means to be safe. But there's also, you know, some of those messages can be framed in ways that are inartful and ultimately not very helpful. We're going to take a break now, and I will be back with Eric Peterson talking about unconscious biases and what we can do about them in a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin on Family Matters talking today with Eric Peterson. Eric has been working for many years helping companies to develop diverse workforces and inclusive workplaces to meet the needs of a 21st century marketplace. Uh, his work has his his writing has been published in Protiles, Profiles in Diversity Journal and Echelon Magazine, and maybe I'll tell tell you some more later. Um, he's the recipient of the Brotherhood Sisterhood Award from the National Conference of Community and Justice. And 
Along with everything else, I'd like to let you know that Eric has a Master's of Science degree in Organization Development from American University. So we're going to take our conversation now a little bit into the realm of science with a story about what people do that that changes biases. Yeah, you know, there was a, a great study that was done by a woman named Christy Lem uh, back in 2006, and I hope that I'm remembering uh, these details right. I'm, I definitely have the, the end of her study. I, I know I've got right. Um, but she started off uh, by bringing people into her lab and uh, asking them some questions, basically having them fill out, I, I assume, as a questionnaire, um, that talked a little bit about, you know, how many gay people do you know uh, in your family? You know, do you know any gay people at work? Do you know any gay people in your neighborhood or in your circle of friends? And she gauged, you know, how many people had any kind of relationship with any gay, lesbian, or bisexual people. And then she asked them a series of questions about their... Um, their comfort level in certain situations. So, uh, you know, situations could have been things like, uh, would you be comfortable if a same-sex couple came to your house for dinner? Would you be comfortable going to the home of a same-sex couple for dinner? How comfortable would you be at a gay wedding? How comfortable would you be at a gay bar? Something like that. And then she had folks watch this uh, very carefully crafted slideshow uh, that showed heterosexual couples and same-sex couples intermittently doing things together. And while she was showing them the slideshow. She had them hooked up to some machines that uh, measured things like pulse rate and things like blink rate, because apparently when we're uncomfortable, we blink a little bit more uh, than when we're not. And so she studied all of these kind of automatic reactions to the visual stimuli that she was putting forward. And when she put all this data together, she found that to no one's surprise, really, I would imagine, people who have more and closer relationships with gay, lesbian, or bisexual people tended to exhibit more comfort with the idea of same-sex attraction, both knowledgeably in terms of their own knowledge of their comfort uh, and also in in implicit ways that would come through with some of these body reactions uh, from watching these things. So she basically proved something that I think, you know, most of us would think is, is fairly common sense, and that is that, you know, knowledge of people and actually having relationships with folks really kind of brings down the temperature and allows people to be a little bit more comfortable uh, with folks around them. And I've certainly seen evidence of this uh, in my own family when it comes to people who, for instance, you know, practice Islam. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that, that is so difficult uh, about living in 2015 is there's so much information around us that anybody can easily choose information sources that already validate some of the preconceived notions uh, and biases that they already have. And so there are certain family members of mine who will get all of their information uh, from sources that will teach them that anybody who practices Islam is some kind of potential jihadist. Uh, and then there's me, on the other hand, that lives in a very multicultural city, and I have quite a few colleagues and friends. Uh, who are devout Muslims and no more terrorists than I am or any of my neighbors <laughs> would be. Uh, and so I have that uh, instant sense that, you know, there's nothing inherently scary uh, about Islam. And there are, there are members of my family who would not necessarily share that viewpoint. And it's really a, a lack of uh, real knowledge of anybody with a, with a human face that they can, you know, converse with and, and have any kind of interaction with uh, that meets that identity criteria. Mm-hmm. 
So what do people do about that? A lot of people live in in a place where it's not diverse. They don't run across people who are of a different racial or ethnic group or even different religion from themselves very often. Yeah, you know, exposing uh, folks, I was, you know, if we're talking about, you know, parenting and how to uh, minimize bias among among kids, it can be difficult if you don't, you know, live in a place that has a lot of diversity. I mean, the first thing that I would think of would be, you know, expose your kids to as much diversity as possible um, and and see what kind of effect <clears throat> that would have. I imagine it would have a very positive effect uh, on the socialization uh, of those children. When, you know, the, the diversity is not there, I think it's up to us to be really careful about what kind of media images uh, the kids are being exposed to and to talk about things like that, even if it's as simple as, you know, when I was a kid, uh, the Smurfs, you know, <laughs> they... Uh, popular cartoon uh, that a lot of kids my age when I was six or seven were watching. And it would have been really interesting if any of our parents had said, why do you think there's only one girl? Why do you think that all the Smurfs are boys and there's this one girl and her job is basically to kind of fluff her hair? And look oh, my gosh. And her entire personality is girl and everyone else gets a personality. What do you think that's about, kids? You know, And that would have been an interesting conversation to have that might have woken us up a little bit to you know, how we treat the girls in our lives who are obviously much more complex than what we were getting kind of served up to us uh, in, in cartoon form in that way. But it, it, it means that a parent has to be really conscious of those things and, and taking a look at, you know, wow, these are not just cute, mindless, you know, vehicles for entertainment, but they actually teach kids lessons um, in very sneaky ways sometimes. And so really kind of being mindful of what they're absorbing from the world around them when they are so impressionable and they're learning lessons that are going to be very, very difficult to shake later on. Yeah, that's one of the reasons the Simpsons show was ban- banned in my house. <laughs> I just didn't yeah, like I mean, you know that. I, I think the Simpsons, which I find to be hilarious, you know, I was definitely an adult when that show came on, and I, <laughs> I think I understand, you know, what, uh, where satire lives sometimes. You know, sometimes satire can be really difficult uh, for little kids to kind of grasp and, and things that are kind of shown to you that you know you're supposed to be laughing at, instead you start laughing with. Uh, and that can, be, that can be difficult. So yeah, monitoring what, what kids are watching and not necessarily saying, you know, that it's all bad or wrong, but just, you know, having conversations about it. Because sometimes I think that, you know, certain uh, certain attributes are, uh, you know, it's almost more valuable to experience them if they're not offensive and they're not really kind of damaging uh, to kids, kind of saying, you know, hey, what about that? Um, Gina Davis, you know, the actress who's most uh, probably widely known for Thelma and Louise, um, she has instituted a uh, institute that studies gender equality in entertainment. And a lot of what she does is taking a look at, at entertainment that's aimed at kids. What she's found is that um, both in terms of speaking characters and in crowd scenes even. Only about 17% of the characters that little kids see are identifiably female, uh, which obviously women are 51% of the U.S. population, so it should actually be a pretty slight majority if you were going to say that we were representing reality. And yet 17%, that's a tiny little number, uh, which does teach kids right away whose stories do we consider to be valuable. I mean, in order to escape something like that, you basically have to ban mass media altogether, which I think would probably be <laughs> not very helpful if you're trying to raise kids who belong to the culture to which they belong. Um, 
But, you know, some of these things, I think, merit a conversation every once in a while. Why don't we see more girls? And, and uh, you know, and girls need this conversation as much or more so than boys do uh, to kind of understand their place in the world and, and to understand that, you know, what you see on the TV is not necessarily indicative of reality. Uh-huh. One of my pet ideas is... Mm-hmm. Boy, we're getting a lot about me on this show. <laughs> um, one, one idea I have is that if the option is available to you in your neighborhood and you're like me, a white, currently middle-class person, I wasn't always middle-class, but now I am, um, If when, when you're raising your children, if you have the option of leaving them often in the care of somebody whose primary language is something else, most likely Spanish where I live, but any other language would be good. Um, I think it's great to let kids be exposed to another language and start learning another language and some of the cultural things that go with that language very early in life. What are your thoughts about that? Does that make any difference? Well, as someone who, who lived that life a little bit, that, that sounds like a great idea to me. I was uh, placed in, when my, my father was in the U.S. Navy. Uh, and so for the, for four years, from when I was two years old to when I was six years old, I actually lived in Spain. Um, my childhood consisted of being born in California and living in Spain, D.C., northern Japan, southern Japan, Rhode Island, Hawaii, and Scotland before going to college in the Pacific Northwest and eventually settling in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and I have a suspicion that that life led me to diversity and inclusion. Um, yeah. yeah, it just, you know, it, it seems to make sense that, that that, you know, is one of the things that gave me an interest in this early on. And for the, the four years that we lived in Spain, I was actually uh, under the care. My mom worked as a fourth grade teacher outside the home, and my dad uh, was on a ship half the time, and, and the rest of the time he went to the office nine to five. Um, there was a woman who's, who took care of me. Her name was Peppy, and she spoke, uh, a little bit of English, halting English, but mostly Spanish, and we conversed in Spanish all the time. Now, the the sad epilogue to the story is that we came back to the States. I didn't have a chance to use any of my Spanish, and uh, it, I, I since kind of lost it. <laughs> so I became a very typical monolingual American uh, at the end of the day. But there's a lot to suggest that not only in terms of your framing around culture and the kind of mind-expanding uh, things that that can can bring you by being bilingual. Uh, there's just a lot of things about being bilingual that just make you smarter in a lot of ways. I mean, some folks have even suggested that kids who know two languages are just better at math um, because there's just, you know, learning different syntax and different ways of putting ideas together, uh, you know, is really freeing. Uh, when you think about it, language is really the primary um, method that we have of understanding the world around us. If someone needs to show you something that you've never done before or explain to you a concept uh, that, that you're unfamiliar with, you can either read it or you can hear it, but language is going to be the vehicle uh, that tells you that. And, and simply, you know, learning another way, completely new way to express yourself. Uh, if you only know one language, you're really hemmed in by what, you know, in my case, the English language can do for you. Uh, in terms of, of showing you what's possible out there in the world. Um, and so folks who do know two languages and, and enough that they can switch between them and even translate one idea to the other and come across notions that have no translation. Um, you know, just think about all the different ways in which you've heard, you know, there's not really a direct translation for this word in English. Well, if somebody has a capacity of understanding something deeply, 
that I can't possibly get my head around because unless there's an English translation for it, I'm not quite going to get it. Um, you know, I think that, yeah, there's an incredible amount of value uh, there. Um, and I would, you know, uh, if I, if I uh, have children eventually, that's going to be one of the, my primary goals is to make sure that they don't grow up to be yet another monolingual American. You know, there's an old yeah. joke, what do you call somebody who speaks three languages, a trilingual, how about two languages, a bilingual, and how about one language, American? You know, it's just pretty <laughs> typical um, in our world, uh, where most people who belong to uh, the Western world outside of the United States typically know two, if not three, languages. Yeah. And I do think that that gives them very yeah. much an intellectual as well as a cultural advantage. Right. The other great thing about learning two languages, if you manage to find some people you can continue to use the language with, is that you have a much larger set of people with whom you can communicate effectively. Yes. And that's got to help the causes of diversity and inclusiveness. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you talk about inclusion, it's, it's all about making people feel included. And one of the ways in which you include people is by sharing information and by communicating with them. And when people are fundamentally, you know, blocked off from that communication because they don't share uh, those language skills, um, you know, it can be really, really difficult. And so if, if you can raise little creatures that can, you know, uh, go out there in the world and, and aid that in any way, I would say that, that you're doing a great job. So let's get back for a couple of minutes to working on ourselves, our, uh, the sure. parent generation. Um, I'm sure I've heard you say, I don't know if it was on this show or somewhere else, but feeling guilty about having biases doesn't help anybody. No. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I always like to, to share with people is that I used to say about bias, that bias is always something that could happen. You know, bias might happen in any circumstance. I no longer say that bias is something that could or might happen. I, I tell people that bias is happening. Every single moment of every day, that's the only way that we know how to look at the world is through the lens of our previously lived experience. Uh, That's how we understand what a lamp is and what a chair is. And I mean, really, it's all bias. It's anything that that your your past is is helping you out uh, in understanding, you know, what's happening right in front of you or trying to predict the future uh, in some way, which which we do all the time. Um, And so having guilt about having bias uh, is really unproductive because what it tends to do uh, is that those couple times that bias can get us in trouble, you know, those times that you notice that you have a squirrely feeling about someone and you think, oh, am I ascribing something to their race or their religion? And I don't really like that about myself. Um, Pushing that back into your subconscious uh, and and pretending that it's not there uh, is a byproduct of guilt. Guilt absolutely leads to denial. And denying your biases mean that they sneak back into your subconscious where they have a much greater power uh, over your eventual behavior and they they keep you from learning some fundamental things about yourself. I always like to remind people that when you discover that you have a bias, that's not a report card on your soul. If anything, that's really telling you something about the world that you live in. And and that's something that, that has somehow wormed its way into your brain that you might want to correct. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there are ways to correct that. Uh, just knowing that you have bias and that it's okay and that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person. Uh, Mother Teresa had biases. Mahatma Gandhi had biases. <laughs> Anybody with a human brain has this capability uh, of doing this. Uh, knowing a little bit about your background, doing some self-awareness work to figure out where did that bias come from? 
uh, I don't mean to have it. I don't want to have it. Let yourself off the hook and say, okay, where did, where did I get that? Um, was it, you know, repeated exposure to a certain kind of character in the movies or television? Or was it something my parents told me when I was younger? Or, um, you know, any kind of sneaky subliminal message that, that sneaked its way in that said that certain people were bad or scary? Um, right. What is that? And doing a little bit of detective work on yourself is a, is a right. really key piece. And then, as I right. said before, you know, trying to develop those positive interactions with role models from whatever group you have that might trigger you somehow. Those are all great ways to try to mitigate your own biases and, and make sure that they don't lead to harmful, unhelpful behaviors in the future. Okay, we'll take another break now. Eric Peterson and I will be back in a minute. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co parenting, there is a better way family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at APFMNet.org. That's APFMNet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, and here on Family Matters today, I'm talking with Eric Peterson, who is a diversity and inclusiveness expert. He's actually been 
quoted on CNN, NPR, USA Today, the Bloomberg Group, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe. I think I'll stop now. You get the idea. (laughs) So uh, during the break, Eric and I were talking about social primacy. What is that, Eric? Yeah, social primacy is a really interesting phenomenon that happens uh, in your brain. It's a biological reaction. Um, Maslow uh, once created this thing, the hierarchy of needs, you remember, and and he said that, you know, people need to self-actualize, but uh, if they can't meet some of the other needs that exist below that, uh, they're not going to be able to really make good decisions for themselves. And one of the needs that he identified that was kind of in the middle of his pyramid was called belongingness. And recently, neuroscientists and social psychologists have really kind of come around to the idea that that belongs on the base of the pyramid. People are calling belongingness our core human need. Um, And this is one of the reasons why, you know, babies, for instance, who are born to a mother who cannot immediately take care of him or her, uh, will be placed, you know, in a a crib, in a hospital. uh, And if they are clothed and fed and kept warm and everything that you need to, you'd think, you know, survive, um, is, is given to them, they will actually not live to see another day unless they are held on a repeated basis. So babies are not held. Uh, and given the sense that they belong to somebody, we're kind of, you know, the human infant is automatically programmed to kind of shut off uh, because belongingness is such a core need um, to what we're doing. And it, it, belongingness really means that you are seen as your authentic self by a group of people who fundamentally accept you. Um, and this is why one of, it's one of the reasons why uh, certain children are, are prone to suicide. Uh, in, in their teenage years. Uh, LGBT children, for instance, are three times the risk uh, of suicide of their heterosexual peers, and it's this toxic combination of I don't belong and I never will. Uh, if you believe that you fundamentally don't belong in your world and that it's never going to improve for you, it almost becomes a rational uh behavior to somehow try to escape that. Uh, this is why psychologists will refer to solitary confinement in prisons as not only a form of extreme punishment, but they'll actually label it torture uh, because people are not meant to be isolated. We are incredibly social, tribal creatures. And so uh, social primacy uh, basically means that if you are excluded over and over and over again from a group of people, you will experience sensations in your brain in the same places in the brain that we tend to associate with physical pain. Uh, And when you feel that way, it triggers a threat response in you, uh, the same kind of fight-or-flight experience that you might have had if a dangerous person, you know, (laughs) were to cross your path. Uh, That kind of uh, ongoing experience of, of pain really causes people to retreat. Um, and this can be, you know, uh, a lot of families who are going through uh, instances where children are being bullied, you know, really have to kind of be on the watch out for uh, how this can, can cause people to withdraw. Uh, because before you get to the, the point where you're going to, you know, cause yourself any kind of real danger, uh, you are going to emotionally kind of distance yourself from the entire world around you. Uh, and even if you have a very loving, you know, home environment, that kind of repeated exposure uh, to exclusion will actually lead people to really kind of emotionally check out. Um, and so that's another piece of the, the bias conversation. And, and it really is, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, emotional reactions, but these are actually biological functions that are happening in your brain in response to uh, certain uh, experiences that people can go through. And it, it can be something that, you know, families uh, to, to our, our 
topic area here today, really need to watch out for. Um, and it is very much connected to this idea of unconscious bias. It's a, it's a kind of an automatic reaction uh, to a particular threat response, this threat being that of exclusion from, from your peers and from uh, the social networks that surround you. It occurs to me that that probably happens not only at the level of one individual being excluded from a group, but at the level of a group being excluded from the dominant, powerful group in a culture. Yeah, I would. I, I think that you're probably onto something. Um, you know, I mean, it certainly happens, as I've said, with... Um, you know, LGBT adults don't deal with this nearly as much as kids do because adults have a little bit more agency, you know, and, and um, lesbian and gay adults can kind of find each other and create a safe community and, and look out for each other and, and really be themselves in a way that sometimes the high school environment doesn't really allow for. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that's helpful in that regard. Um, but, you know, as, as people who belong to that group uh, in uh, you know, in a high school environment, don't necessarily have that. Um, but also, I think that there is something that kind of ties to group psychology. I think that if you, uh, you know, if you're part of a group, and one of the things that you're taught over and over and over again is that they hate us, and that, you know, we're not safe living in this world, and that we are a persecuted minority, and you kind of do uh, begin to see yourself primarily as a victim, and you're, you're given that message over and over again, that can become its own kind of bias, and it can be very insidious. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to make sure that, you know, uh, pride in oneself and, and self-esteem uh, and the knowledge that you are a whole and complete human being and that you're pretty darn wonderful, those are, are better, you know, messages to be giving folks as they are being raised uh, than this kind of perpetual, even if, it's, even if there's some truth there, even if there is some truth that, you know, as a minority group, you are not necessarily always treated well. Um, that has to be kind of, it, it really depends on how that's framed. Uh, that can be framed as a, and that's in, you know, it's a form of injustice and it's not right because look at how wonderful we are is one way to express that. And, you know, it's not right because they're horrible, hateful people and they want us dead and we are a persecuted minority. And there's no sense of kind of taking real ownership and pride in oneself. Um, that can be a really damaging kind of message to, to give to somebody over and over in a relentless kind of way that really does become a fixture uh, in one's brain and, and really, you know, warps somebody's worldview uh, in a particularly destructive direction. I see. And I think the, the other thing is that some of it can get internalized. If you are a member of the oppressed group it can be all too easy to believe I'm really not as good as the people in the dominant group. You know, and and I imagine this probably is, you know, where sometimes, you know, we're horrified to realize that as we're raising our kids, we're turning into our parents. Um, Sometimes that's kind of funny. And we realize that our parents had a point that we never really (laughs) appreciated (laughs) when we were younger. Uh, But sometimes, you know, it, it, you know, you'll, I'll hear young moms really catch themselves saying things to their young daughters, and they're like, I don't even believe that. I don't want my daughter to think that way about themselves, but I guess I have these, you know, antiquated notions about gender and how, you know, let the boys play, and, you know, maybe you should be over here doing this, you know, and, and keeping them away from playing in the dirt with toy trucks with some of their boyfriends when they, they consciously realize, hey, there's nothing wrong with that, and I want my daughter to explore those kinds of things, but there are some really rigid gender roles that just got trapped in there and come mm-hmm. out in the most inopportune moments. And, and obviously raising boys, that can be 
uh, an issue for them as well. The whole, you know, I want my child to be sensitive, but in a moment of, you know, my, my you know, preteen boy is crying and suddenly I'm, I'm filled with humiliation because there's this idea that boys aren't supposed to cry and toughen up, be a man. You know, and those kinds of really harmful messages can, can pop out uh, mm-hmm. when folks least expect them because they've been, mm-hmm. they've been raised with these really kind of, you know, distinctive roles that, that certain genders and certain types should play. Mm-hmm. You and I have been speaking with the perhaps not explicitly stated assumption that learning to notice our biases and bring them into consciousness and reconsider how they affect our behavior and our decisions is a good thing, that lessening biases that turn out to be inaccurate or have harmful consequences is a good thing. And I don't know if there's any way that we can say better why we think that matters. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, there, there does seem to be kind of a, a bent to our conversation that, uh, that leads us in that direction. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I like to, to explain to people when I'm talking about bias is simply that we do not perceive objective reality objectively. Um, and so no matter, you know, who you are and, and what your feelings are about some of these topics such as race or gender or LGBT rights or disabilities or religion or any of those kinds of things, we, you know, we want to see the world as it is, as opposed to constantly only being limited to seeing the world as we are uh, and as only seeing the things that we expect to see. There's a lot of stuff that we miss if we let our biases do all of our thinking for us. Um, and so just, you know, having a clearer view of the world, I think, is what we're talking about. And I think that most folks uh, could probably, you know, uh, appreciate that. Something else that occurs to me is that, you know, we said before, kids, you know, parents want to keep their kids safe, right? Uh, and so teaching a young girl to be, you know, wary of her environment as she grows up, you know, if, we, if you had a, a 16-year-old girl and she was, you know, leaving her high school at night and she was with a friend, and her car is way at the other end of the parking lot, and she sees a group of young men that she can't quite make out over near her car, she might just unconsciously, unwittingly say her to friend, hey, can you walk me to my car? Because in a moment, there's a threat response that comes up in her, and she says, you know what, I'd feel safer if somebody walked me to my car. That's exactly what I think 99% of us would want our daughters to do in that moment. That, that's a... Uh, an unconscious, you know, automatic behavior that seems to make sense to us. Uh, and so I do want to reiterate that a lot of the times our biases are, are doing a really good job, and that's a bias that she could even notice and say, wow, I noticed that I had this threat response, that I was automatically had this welling up of fear in me, and if I had time to think about it, I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of times reconsidering your biases is not changing them, it's just validating what's there. Uh, is just kind of noticing, hey, that was a bias. That was an automatic judgment that's rooted more in my past than in the present moment. And so maybe I should examine that for a moment. And maybe you'll find out uh, that your bias was absolutely correct and that the, the, your past actually had something very valuable to teach you in that moment. We are all going to run across, though, a moment where something that happened in our past is not necessarily the best indicator of what's going on in our present state. And it would be good for us to say, hey, let me think about that just a second. Not to say that it was wrong, not to say that your biases are horrible and it's, you're a bad person for having them, uh, but simply to say, you know, is this going to serve me and the people around me the most right now? No, okay, just because my son's, you know, new friend 
reminds me of the kid who beat me up when I was his age, you know, in my hometown, does not necessarily mean that I'm going to ban this kid from my house. Maybe I should give my son's new friend a chance. Maybe I should get to know him. You know, mm-hmm. and that would be an example of where uh, a bias might serve, you know, mitigating your biases just might serve you a little bit. And even if you do that, there's probably going to be something in the back of your head going, watch out for that kid because he seems like trouble <laughs> to me. And maybe that's a good instinct, you know, but, but to make sure that your behavior is in line with what you want to do. And not okay. just the fast. I'm going to interrupt you, you to because we have about one minute left, and okay. I want you to have the chance to tell us where we could learn more about the kinds of things we've been talking about in this show. And then just to add one thing or reiterate one thing, you know, what's important that you want the listeners to take away from this show? Great. Well, you know, we have a lot of information available at, at my company's website, which is www.cookross.com. Uh, and specifically, uh, my, uh, the founder of our company, Howard Ross, wrote a great, very easy-to-read book called Everyday Bias, which is available at our website and also at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Um, if I were to leave you know, this conversation with, with one really important thing, it's that we need to really let go of this idea that bias is something that only bad people have. Uh, that we all have it, that we can't feel guilty about it if we're going to do anything about it, uh, and just to know that it's always there. And to knowing that it's there is, is really the first most important step uh, in learning how to mitigate that going forward. Okay. Thanks very much, Eric Peterson. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.